Father God, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 133. And as you're turning there, locate in your bulletin the, the outline for this morning's sermon. And use that, if you will, to follow along and take notes and read the quotes. Whoops. I'm going to move this over just a little bit. It's shining in my eyes. There we go. Um, very good. So, if you would, Psalm 133 is the text that we're looking at uh, this morning. Um, and it is the 14th psalm in the Songs of Ascents. So we're going to gaze upon this little psalm, but yet this wonderful psalm um, as it is presented for us this morning. Um, This is God's word, so let me invite you together with me to stand at the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of our King. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the privilege you've given us now to come here and fellowship with you around your word. Lord, we pray that that would be what we would do this morning. Holy Spirit, do a work of grace in the hearts of us, your people. That these words would be more than just mere words, but that you would use them by and with your grace to transform us, to encourage us, to humble us, to grow and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, we entrust this time to you towards that end. Use it for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In Jesus Christ, we have one of the greatest callings, freedoms, and privileges, which is to relate to God on the basis of his favor. Now, this is amazing grace, brothers and sisters. This is what makes grace amazing. We are to presuppose, because of Christ's work, we presuppose that God's disposition towards us at all times is one of favor. Now that's hard to believe. It's faith, and it's hard to believe and difficult to believe. And because of that, we are not happy. Most Christians are not able to live there. And so they resurrect a system of works righteousness, whereby they create a graded system with performance standards and obligations, which if they fulfill them, they will know for sure God is pleased with them. It's not enough to trust God at his word. We want these performance-based rules, which we can follow, which in the end makes us feel good about our walks with God. So Paul, in Colossians 2, for example, exhorted the people of God there. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, what are those? Performance-based religion. If you've died 
to performance-based relationship with God, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with other using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Paul says, brothers and sisters, why, have you, why are you abandoning the grace of God for these, um, yeah, wonderful things, uh, perhaps, that you do in order for you to believe God accepts you? Why are you doing that? They are of no benefit, if you read on, they're of no benefit to godliness. They're of no benefit in your relationship with Christ if you think those are the things that make God happy uh, with you. The fullness belongs to Christ. And that is why Paul uh, strongly exhorted the Galatian uh, churches. He, he, he warned them that they um, ought not to rebuild what was once destroyed in Christ. You say, Amen. And praise God that that is the the case because I live by grace. And my question to you is, do you really? Do we really live by grace? You know, a performance-based Christianity can be identified with a couple of questions, a couple tests. Let me give them to you real quickly. There's a whole lot more, but I'll give you a couple. Number one, do you in your walk with God at times come to the place where you say to God, that's not fair? If you do, you may think you're living by grace, but you're living by performance. Do you boast? Do you defend yourself? Your spouse comes in and says, what you did was wrong. Do you defend yourself? Do you slander? Do you run other people down? All of those um, are the symptoms and signs that you and I, as much as we profess faith in Christ, are living according to a performance standard, whether it's before God or man. Do you have personal standards of righteousness to which you hold other people accountable? And by those personal standards of righteousness, delineate those who are acceptable in the church and those who are compromisers in the church. Those who you should fellowship with and those who, quite frankly, you don't care to fellowship with. Do you make distinctions when it comes to people? To things like gender, age, health, weight, race, health, prosperity. Do you allow those things to compromise the fellowship you have with another person? Now, it's this last question I want to be on a little bit. I want to focus on a little bit on this lengthy introduction here. Okay, because in Scripture, anytime you've got grace being proclaimed, it won't be very long before you, you, you read about making distinctions or, or warning us against making distinctions when it comes to your relationship with God's people. For example, James chapter 2. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. 
Have you not made distinctions amongst yourself and become judges with evil motives? Brothers and sisters, when you and I do that, when we make distinctions, we are, be, we are setting ourselves up as judges and holding people accountable to a righteous standard, a standard of righteousness, which is not in Scripture. Incredible. Colossians 3 to the Galatian believers struggling with legalism, struggling with performance-based Christianity. Paul writes, there is neither. He's not talking about justification. He's talking about relationships and body of Jesus Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no race. We don't make distinctions on race when it comes to fellowship. There's neither male nor female. Gender is no longer an issue when it comes to fellowship in the body of Jesus Christ. There's neither... Um, slave or free. Socioeconomics, Paul says, has no place when it comes to making distinctions as who you and I have to fellowship in the body of Jesus Christ. You are all one in Christ. Brothers and sisters, performance-based Christianity is uh, in which we make distinctions is diametrically opposed to that which God created in Christ at the cross. Listen to Ephesians 2. You know this passage, but listen to it. Ephesians 2, for Christ is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Background real quickly. When God called a people in the Old Testament, Abraham, he gave them, because they were in their infancy state, he gave them the call to be separate from the world. Okay? And to do that, he gave them all sorts of commands via the judicial ceremonial law, which kept them separate and distinct from the world in which they lived. So, for example... Leviticus 20, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I shall drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. Hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. So this separation was alive and well in the Old Covenant. And because of the separation, that created in the mind of God's people a distinction between acceptable, unacceptable. Arabs, unacceptable. Philistines, unacceptable. No, no, do not. Don't marry them. Don't mingle with them. Keep distinct, right? Think of all the different um, races in that time. Unacceptable. The only ones acceptable to God are his people, Jews. And when Solomon built the temple, this mentality, which was healthy at the time, it was needed. It was needed that God's people in their, in their infancy who could not handle engaging foreign worldviews, they would have easily uh, succumbed to it as they did, necessary that they would be uh, distinct. They placed a sign on a wall that separated the temple and the world. And this sign read this, thus, No Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure 
Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. It was a warning for Gentiles. You're not welcome here. You cannot enter into this place where only Jews can go. That is the barrier of the dividing wall referenced in Ephesians 2. When we read that Jesus Christ himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which were the law and commandments of what? Separation. Contained in the ordinances that in himself he might make the two, the two what? Well, in this case, Gentiles and Jews into one man. Now, we're not talking about universalism here. This isn't when Jesus died, he said, now everyone's saved. What he's saying is when it comes to those who are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, guess what? No longer are you and I to think or make distinctions, whether it's based upon race or gender, socioeconomics, height, weight, health, color of skin, etc., etc. We're not to make those distinctions. The only thing that matters is, are you in Christ? If you are, then we have fellowship, one another in Jesus Christ. Um, And that, brothers and sisters, that fellowship, that unity is the focus of Psalm 133 before us this morning. Okay, this psalm was written to not command, and this is a peculiarity about this psalm, and I'm going to reference it. This, this psalm does not command unity. It describes the beauty of it. So let's back up a second here. This psalm was written as Song of Ascents. It was the, the, the 14th song written. And it was written for people who were making that th- three times, thrice yearly trek to Jerusalem. Now, heretofore, you probably haven't meditated much upon that idea, but the last three Psalms are all written from the perspective of being in Jerusalem. And this one, this uh, 14th one, is a, a doozy. Understand that at this moment, if you were going to Jerusalem at this moment, you would have been one of over 100,000 Jews who have assembled in Jerusalem on top of the population. Do you remember Christ's birth, right? Do you remember when they took this census and everyone had to go back to their hometown? Do you remember how there was no housing for Mary and Joseph so Christ was born in, a, in a, you know, a cave or wherever they were because there was no room for them you know, in the end? Brothers and sisters, it would have been like that every time you went there on these holy days. Jerusalem would have been swarming with people. You would have been, most people there would have, would have come after a two or three month journey. They would have arrived there for um, hungry, tired, dwindling supply, uh, uh, supplies, frayed nerves. Housing would be limited and the price of essentials such as food and drink easily would have soared. Crowds would be everywhere, as well as the typical problems which came from it. Noise, mayhem, hucksters, disputes, and the like. And so God comes and he gives them their 14th song that he wants his people to memorize. 
And by memorizing, he wants them to embody. He wants them to appropriate. He wants them to incarnate the content of this psalm in their thinking. And what he does is he tells them, he holds out this carrot saying, do you know how amazing it is to worship me in a context of unity? Notice verse 1. Behold, when you read that in the Greek and the Hebrew, in your mind read, you're never going to believe what I'm going uh, to say. It's a shock word to wake us up, cold water in the face. Behold, how good, the word here is tov, which speaks of intrinsic moral goodness, and how pleasant, this word is um, naim, which speaks of intrinsic Um, beauty. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. Now commenting on this, Tony uh, Murata wrote these words. Thinking back to Genesis 1, when God calls his his, uh, creation good, he is saying in a sense that this is how it is meant to be. So it is with God's people when dwelling in unity. We can say in the midst of pleasant unity, this is how it was meant to be. That's why he says, behold. Brothers and sisters, if you will come to Jerusalem when you worship God and lay aside self, take up the cross of Christ, self-denial, and place your focus on worshiping God and blessing and encouraging everyone in your midst, don't worry about where you sleep. Don't worry about what you eat. Don't worry about the fact that for the last 14 years, our family stayed in that apartment when we came and someone else is there. Don't let that ruin it. Focus on worshiping God and blessing the body of Jesus Christ. When you do that, behold, something's going to happen. It's going to well up from within each and every one of us. Together, we're going to corporately say this is how God intended a body to be. That's the idea. So he's talking here about the glory, and I'm using glory the way we've defined it, the weightiness, the substance of unity. And he's not commanding it, which is odd. We're going to talk about why he's not uh, commanding it at the end. He's not commanding it. Rather, he's simply describing it in its glory, in its beauty. So with that... Let's learn this song together. Let's learn the beauty, the glory of unity. Would you notice first and foremost, verse 2, it's sanctifying. Notice verse 2. A, it's like the precious oil upon the head. Now, if you stop right there and you know the song, you're probably thinking we're talking about an ordination here like Aaron. It's like the precious oil upon the head, because later on it talks about Aaron, right? So you're going to think at this point, this is about Aaron and his ordination, which involved precious oil. Listen to Exodus 30. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take also for yourself the finest of spices, of flowing myrrh, remember this, of fragrant cinnamon, of fragrant cane, of cassia, and of olive oil. Mix them uh, together. 
And you shall make of these a holy, uh, a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil, and with it you shall anoint the tent of the meeting, the ark, and the testimony, and then later on, verse uh, 30, and you shall... Uh, Anoint Aaron and his sons and, consecra- and uh, consecrate them that they may minister um, as priests uh, to me. So they did that. There was this anointing oil that could only be used for the temple, tabernacle, and priests. That's it. Okay, so you might be thinking that's what this is talking about. It's not talking about that at first. This is rather talking about another oil, which was a combination of... Um, um, herbs, spices, and myrrh, which, when combined, perfo- uh, uh, created. I'm um, sorry. When combined with oil, created once again a perfume. Listen to Ecclesiastes nine. This is the oil referenced in our passage. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, drink your wine with the cheerful heart. Think of a of a. One of those gatherings where we're worshiping God and, and serving him as a group and as, as a people. Eat your, uh, eat your bread, drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. You are righteous in God's eyes. He accepts you. Eat and drink accordingly. Let your clothes be white all the time to reflect what God has made you. And let not oil be lacking on your head. All right, what's going on here? Well, if you think about it, if you lived in the environs of Jerusalem as a normal day-to-day thing, you'd go to market, and at market, it'd be crowded with a bunch of people. And you'd smell all kinds of smells. You'd smell good smells, right? Food cooking for sale. You'd smell bad smells. You'd smell the body odor of fishermen. You'd smell the body odor of farmers. You'd smell the body odor of, of, of beggars. You smell the body order of um, elite people, high, you know, upper class people who wore a perfume. You smell all kinds of things when you moved around in the plaza. Well, God says, brothers and sisters, when it comes to my holy days, this is a special day. It's set apart. Therefore, we're going to set everyone apart with a perfume. Everyone is to wear a perfume on their head. So that when you go and mix, you're going to smell not bad smells, a beautiful smell which only is used on these holy days. Incredible. So you see the, um, uh, David, who wrote this, is, is, is saying, what is unity in the body of Christ like? Unity is like the holy oil that anoints the head at festivals. What, do, what does it do? It sets apart the entire environment. It's already set apart, but it makes it even that much more special because it's what adorns everything. Everywhere you go, you smell this. You enjoy it. And it, it, it stops you from going, ooh, boy, that was a foul odor, to, hey, let me embrace everyone and anyone. It's sanctifying. It's sanctifying. That's the first point that, that David makes here, that God may, uh, makes here. Brothers and sisters, do you know what happens when unity pervades the body of Jesus Christ? It makes a gathering unique. Think of it. To leave the world filled with its hostilities, competing worldviews, challenges, politics, 
strivings for, you know, uh, jostlings for who's in charge, jostlings for who's the best, you know, pushing people down, lifting people up, you know, um, you, you know, backstabbings to leave that and come to a place where all of that is gone. All we're doing in this gathering is worshiping Jesus we, are, we, have, we have gathered here to exalt Jesus Christ and to encourage each other in their private lives to have their lives revolve around Jesus Christ. That's what the unity of the body produces. Wow, talk about amazing. If that's true of a body, all of a sudden a church gathering, the unity is sanctifying. It makes this gathering unique, so different from the world. In the world, man, you go there, this gathering, sure enough, there's the jostling, there's the power struggles, there's the, 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 the you know, people acting b- better than they are, people looking down, people gossiping. Oh, look at that person. Did you, did you know about them? That doesn't happen in a church, in a body, in a gathering, which, is, which, is, which revolves around Christ. That's all that matters. Christ took away all the other distinctions. Nothing matters. Anymore in the, in the context of fellowship, right? Nothing matters except sin. That would be the only thing that would matter. Anything else? Black, white, yellow, green, socioeconomics, rich, poor, stinky, smelly, tattooed, no tattoos, long hair, no hair. None of it matters anymore because Christ has taken that barrier out. He's united. He's created a unity that our call is to come each Lord's day and enjoy. That's the idea here. He's holding out this carrot that God's people might go, oh, wow, when I go to Jerusalem, I've learned this. When I go there, it's not about me. It's about God. It's about blessing the body of Jesus Christ. It's like that oil that makes it so special. Secondly, would you notice not only is it sanctifying, it's pervasive. Okay, it's pervasive. The unity is pervasive. Verse 2b. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard. Mark the word coming down. Even Aaron's beard, or that is Aaron's beard, coming down a second time upon the edge of his robe. It's verse 3, coming down. The emphasis of verse 2b is coming down. Okay, so, and we're looking at two different anointings. The anointing that we do for the, for the celebration, and then we're thinking about the anointing of the priests. Not just Aaron. Aaron is a type of all of the, the priests. Well, if these anointings, you put, you're called, as, you, as we saw in Exodus 20 and, and Ecclesiastes 9, you're, you're to put a liberal amount of oil on your head. You pour it on there, then, of course, you typically would cover Right? So it's not like you're, you're going to walk around with this dripping hair. You're going to cover it. And what's that oil going to do? Well, it's going to start running down. And it's going to run down. In this case, it's going to run down the face onto the beard. And in the beard, it's going to fall past the beard. And the phrase here in the, in the uh, text, um, at the edge of his robes, sounds like down here. That's not what it's saying. It's talking about his collar. Okay? It's going to run down from his beard down his neck, into his collar, and then beyond. Now, brothers and sisters, what, what is that? That's how 
the oil that's describing this oil that permeates. Everyone knows when you get anointed, you're going to be wearing that oil for the next week or two. You can take those clothes off, but that oil is going to soak into your neck, into your skin, so that everywhere you go, you're going to smell that smell, even after the holy day. Um, Listen to the words of Daniel Estes in this regard. He says, By this simile, the psalmist used a concrete reality to illustrate the abstract notion of the blessing of unity. As the anointing oil covered the face of Aaron, so unity should touch the scent, touch and scent every relationship among the people of God. It's pervasive. So when there's unity at this gathering, we're going to go there and we're going to worship. And there's this unity. Not only does it make this, this, this special day that much more special, because there's nothing going on here that's going on in the world. You don't have that back body, the slander, the complaints, the division. It's not there. We're here enjoying Christ and enjoying his worship. And one another in that context. Well, then secondly, you got this scent, which now you're, you are associating with that glorious, that, that behold, how good and how pleasant. This incredible time, you got this scent, and it touches everywhere you go. Brothers and sisters, unity of a body impacts everyone. From the oldest to the youngest, from the, the, name it, from the biggest to the smallest, from all of it, all of, it touches everyone. Think of it in this way, the opposite, disunity. As a pastor, Dr. or maybe you've seen it too, but I've noticed, and most pastors notice it too, you can tell there's a problem in someone's marriage way before they ever come out and say there's a problem. You know how? Look at the kids. Kids are, you know, what, what, what they call them um, small pictures but big windows. Is that how they say it or is it the opposite? I forget. But the point is, they're a window into a family. Why? Because those small kids can't mask mom and dad who fight all the time. Mom and dad who cuss and curse and yell and scream and push and shove. Kids can't find, they, they, they don't have that ability yet to be Pharisees. So when you see them and you go, whoa, what is going on? That's not normal. Something's wrong here. As a shepherd, you go, what's going on in the home? Okay? Brothers and sisters, disunity impacts everyone in the home. Disunity impacts organizations. Find a sports team where the, the, the management, the coaches are fighting, and you will find that that impacts the janitors as they go, man, this is a horrible organization. As they sit there and say, who wants to be a, a New York giant? Who wants to be a, a you know, name it, right? Who wants to be this? Because this place is going down. This ship is going down. Disunity impacts everybody. And conversely, unity impacts everybody as well. In parenting, one of, the, one of the first things I teach in my class on parenting, on foundations, the foundational elements of biblical parenting, one of the first things that we talk about is the importance of the marriage. Great marriages produce security in the home for the kids. Great marriages impact babies. Well, brothers and sisters, unity, as God is saying, is pervasive. It impacts everybody. It changes people's world's views. 
from, man, the world, there's no, man, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's dog eat dog here. There's unity. And God's people know it, especially when the little guys start fighting. Oh, wait a second. Why would you treat a brother or sister like that? It just goes there as opposed to, well, I'm just doing what you're doing, Dad. Once we leave church, there's, there's roast people, isn't there? Man, did you see what so-and-so was wearing? Did you see how they were acting? I'll tell you what, I, I would never sit down and talk with that person. They're horrible, X, Y, Z. Brothers and sisters, unity is pervasive. It, it bleeds into every person in the body. Christ says, brothers and sisters, long, come and enjoy the unity. Behold how good. Why? Because not only is it sanctifying, it's pervasive. It's going to impact everybody. Thirdly, would you notice, it's revitalizing. Verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountain of Zion. Well, what's Hermon and what's the dew of Hermon? Okay, well, let me give you a quick definition. First of all, Hermon is a mountain range north of Jerusalem, 125 miles. Anywhere in Palestine, you can look up and you can see that mountain or that mountain range. Okay, let me read to you from the Zondervan Encyclopedia of the Bible. It is roughly 92,000 feet above sea level, the highest mountain in Syria. It can be seen from many places in Palestine, even from as far away as the Dead Sea. Because snow covers it for more of the year, for much of the year, the Arabs call it the gray-haired mountain or the mountain of, of the snow. The water from its melting snows flows into the rivers north of Huron and provide the principal source for the Jordan River. So the Jordan a River is from Hermon. Below the snow, the sides are covered with trees, pine, uh, uh, let's see, pine, oak, and popular with vineyards. Its forest contains wolves and leopards and sometimes Syrian bears. It's not a high summit with a distinctly marked base, but a whole cluster of mountains. Its three summits are nearly equal in height and are the same distance from each other. It extends 16 to 20 miles from north to south. That's Mount Hermon. Now, there's a geographical um, a con- um, a consideration you need to think about when you think of Jerusalem and Palestine, and that is it's in a desert. Palestine is a desert region. Okay, so it, it is, at the best, it's up to 14 inches of water a year, which is Colorado. You go, ooh, I look at Colorado, it's so green right now. Well, yeah, it's in the water. We're, we're, we're in the water time. Brothers and sisters, go when it's summer, the, you know, one month, two months. Go from Nebraska or Kansas to Colorado, and the first thing you're going to notice when you're in Colorado is, otherwise you wouldn't notice, is a sign that says, Welcome to Colorful Colorado. And if you've ever taken that journey, you've probably laughed because it's not colorful, it's gross, it's a desert. It's disgusting. You drive and you go, I'm in Kansas and this is gross, okay? Now, I mean, I'm not saying all of Kansas, but you're at that, that desert part where it's just, no one lives out, out there. It's horrible. You're driving just the windmill things, right? You're driving and you pass into Colorado. It's the same. That's 14 inches a year. That's Jerusalem. That's Palestine. Now, it's wet months are from November to uh, March. But the summer months of April to October, which incidentally coincides with the seven um, festivals, all take place from April to October. 
in that era, in that time frame, that place would be a veritable wasteland, except for one atmospheric anomaly. In the summer, the hot of the summer, the sun melts the snow and the water on Mount Hermon. And for whatever reason, that evaporated um, water drifts southward down Palestine. It doesn't go east, doesn't go west into the Mediterranean. It goes south, such that it, at nighttime, all that water that melted in that day blankets Palestine. And so while it isn't a veritable paradise, it keeps it green, it keeps it watered, it keeps it well watered, such that, brothers and sisters, to go to Jerusalem during this time, you'd think it'd be horrible. It's not. Why? Because the land has been revitalized by the dew. Take away the dew, and it's worse than Colorado in summertime. Place the dew in there, and it is revitalized. You're going to see green. You're going to see growing plants. Why? Because of, of the dew of Mount Hermon. Walford Jacobson and Tanner wrote, And in Palestine, which saw little rainfall between the months of April and October, dew was an important uh, commodity. Without the, uh, the nightly accumulations of dew, the land would be per, uh, parched and dry for many months out of the year. However, it's this dew that makes plants green during the summer months, revitalizing the land. That's the third point. David goes, you know what unity is like? It's like the dew. It revitalizes the land. Without that dew, it'd be, it'd be barren. But that, that, that dew makes everything rich and livable. So we can go in seven times a year and worship God at the seven main sacrifices or seven main uh, festivals, not uh, sacrifices. And thus, from this, you go, well, so what's unity? Unity, brothers and sisters, is revitalizing. It, it, when you, when you, well, again, think of the opposite. Office party. I've been to office parties. Let me describe my experience. There's forced conversations. There's people pleasing going on. Obligatory eating. Conflict power struggles, people sucking up to the boss, right? Feeling the sense of if I don't do it either, I might not get what that guy's trying to uh, get. You leave them exhausted oftentimes because all of that is opposite with what God's saying. When unity's in the body of Jesus Christ, you don't leave it exhausted. How do you leave it? Revitalized. I go to church and I'm with people from different walks of life, different, different socioeconomics, different genders, different cultures, different um, races. And we're all together because what unites us is Jesus Christ. And we're talking about Christ and encouraging each other in Christ. We're worshiping Christ. And when I leave, I leave this strange, sanctified um, environment to go back into a world filled with its divisions and its competing and its competitions. Wow, what an incredible assembly. God's saying, brothers and sisters, that's what unity does. Lastly, would you notice it? It's a foretaste of glory. Take all those things and then add to it this one, two, 3B. After referring to Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, David then ended saying this, for there in Jerusalem... The Lord commanded the blessing. In other words, he, he 
sent the blessing, life forever. All right, what's the blessing? Well, the word for blessing here is barak, and it's the word used to endue with power for success, prosperity, fecundity, which is um, uh, fruitfulness, or longevity. It's a quote that I, I just read. So that's what blessing is. It's when you bless someone, you are trying to endue them with power for success, prosperity, fruitfulness, and longevity. But this has the article, the... So he's not just talking about general blessing. He's talking about the blessing. And in Scripture, what is the blessing? The blessing in Scripture is the blessing God gave to Abraham, which consists of six promises. Review them with me. One, and they're all P's. They don't need to be P's, but I made them P's. Personal salvation. God promised Abraham personal salvation. That's the blessing. Productivity, being fruitful. Provision, all these things shall be added unto you. People, as in believing children. The privilege in, um, of eternal life. And then lastly, protection. Those are the six promises God gave to Abraham and his children. Which we now understand, based on this psalm, are given um, en masse, did I say it right, to Jerusalem. Well, what's Jerusalem? We've already talked about that. What is it? Jerusalem, brothers and sisters, refers in Scripture either to the Jerusalem above, which is salvation. So when you get saved, all that's yours. And ultimately, the new heavens and new earth, the new heavens and new earth, all of that we will, we will embody and live in. From this, brothers and sisters, do you understand what unity is lastly? It's, it's when, when the body's uh, united we reap, we, we taste a foretaste of what we're going to have in, e, in eternity future. Where we are gathered as a redeemed people around Christ. Where we um, are encouraging each other. We're being protected in our fellowship. Whoa, 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 yeah, be careful about those thoughts. That, that actually sin. Oh, wow, thank you. Um, where there's a provision spiritually on and on and on and on. Unity, lastly, is a foretaste of the glory, and literally a foretaste. It's, we're tasting it, and someday what we have here is going to be gloriously more in eternity future, in the new heavens and the new Jerusalem. But until then, brothers and sisters, what is unity when the body gathers? If we gather forgetting about ourselves, taking up our cross, coming to worship God and to bless the body of Jesus Christ, that's our agenda, and that's all that we do on Sunday at this gathering. Guess what, guys? We are going to enjoy such things as, as it, it'll be sanctifying. It'll be a pervasive that blesses our children. It'll revitalize us as we leave here. We're going to go, wow, am I ever built up and encouraged. And it will be a foretaste of the glory that we have. I read a quote this morning in my quiet time. Repentance and worship are the, are the, are the, are the sides, the dual sides of one coin. Repentance in essence is placing God as the center of your life. Turning from your sin to God. God becomes the focus of your life. And worship is where we praise God for being the center of our life. So brothers and sisters, we come here, we come here hopefully turning from self to Christ. Coming with the sole purpose of having Christ be the center of our life. Not what I get not, have, not, not going, hmm, whose house will I be invited to? Ooh, I got invited to the bad house. Brothers and sisters, there is no bad house. 
It's a place where you fellowship. It's a place where you can um, uh, come from the cold and enjoy the richness of Christ. It's what we do each Lord's Day. Now, how do you maintain this? We're not called to create it. We're called to maintain it. How do we do that? Right? Ephesians 4 says, I'm sorry, 3 says, um, uh, we are called to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're called to preserve what Christ died to create. Remember, he tore down the barrier. He created a unity. We're called to maintain it. How do we do that? Other than the broad stroke of deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ, right? Don't serve yourself, serve God in Christ. How do we do that? Well, guess what, brothers and sisters? This is the peculiarity. You'd think God would say, go be unified. But he doesn't. He describes the beauty of it. Why? Because if you and I embody Psalm 120 to 132, that will be the basis upon which we can enjoy unity. So let me briefly rehearse what we've seen. Not all of the Psalms. You've got on the front of your page an outline. Look at the outline, what we've seen. Notice, if you and I, when you and I come here, Psalm 121, uh, 24, when the burdens, trials, and difficulties of life drive us to Christ instead of the coping mechanisms we've established in the flesh, we're going to know unity. When the love and mercy of God, not the attention or evaluation of man, Psalm 123, is that which buoys us in life, not the evaluations of man, but God's evaluation of us. If that's what, what buoys us, we're going to have unity. When, Psalm 128, our passion in life is Christ-likeness, and we come here with that passion, we're going to have unity. Psalm 130, when we stand in Christ and live not by our performance, but the grace and favor of God, all of us, we're going to have unity. And lastly, Psalm 132, when God's redemptive presence, his person and work is our greatest satisfaction in life. Not the house we're staying in this weekend, not the food we're eating, not the people we're talking to, right? Not getting the attention of some important person, but when his work, his person is our greatest satisfaction, we're going to have unity. So when these songs thus characterize, those are, just, those are the highlights, all of those songs characterize our walks with Christ. We are enabled to die to self and so live to God. When that is the case, we most certainly will be willing to be wronged for the sake of Christ his unity, and so his people. May God give us the grace, seeing the beauty of unity, to be a people who say, you know what, brothers and sisters, I want to go to a place where we all say corporately, this, this is what God meant it to be. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. And these songs that you want us to learn and sing in our journey to the new heavens and the new earth. And what a wonderful song, this little song that this is, but yet filled with such a glorious words and descriptions of what is ours in Christ, in the body of Christ. As we gather each week, Lord bless, we pray, your people, that we might embody the psalms that you have given us to sing here, that they would be incarnate in our lives. And that, Lord, this gathering we know is already sacred by virtue of you setting this day apart. 
but that, Lord, we would come and enjoy it as you intended it to be, as brothers and sisters dwelling together in unity. Lord, we pray you bless us towards that end. In Jesus' name.